So we'll start in chapter 19 at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. What does that actually mean? I mean, many hear this phrase, but I think few grasp hold of it. Reason being, it's a phrase which is out of this world. It's from God himself. I mean, does it mean literally a reversal of all ordering? Uh, that those who are last will skip the queue to be first. Um, like in running races, you know, gold medal winners will be given wooden spoons and vice versa. Is that what it means? No. Uh, it's turning the values of every human system and society upside down. Um, How God acts compared to how we act are very different indeed. Uh, This won't make sense to us, not naturally anyway. Uh, Sometimes people say to me things like this, um, why should I serve God all my life when a murderer 
can become a Christian on their deathbed and still get into heaven, just like me. Surely that's not fair. There's a whole load of stuff going on there, isn't there? But can you see and perhaps even feel the logic yourself? Um, How is that fair? Um, Jesus is the master storyteller, isn't he? And he tells this story on the back of Peter's comment, really from verse 27. We might call it a story of how to, be a, uh, how to run an unsuccessful farming business. I mean, the story it starts in chapter 20, verse 1, but we could be easily very misled, actually, by that big number 20 there, um, implying this is a new chapter and a new idea entirely. That's nonsense. Um, this chapter break is really quite unhelpful. I mean, just comparing chapter 19, verse 30, and 20, verse 16, show that Matthew has topped and tailed this story with many who are first will be last and the last first. It's like he's bracketed the story to make it really obvious to us what's going on. And now, look carefully at the flow of logic within these verses. I mean, the four in the first verse, it connects back to chapter 19, verse 30. So the story of chapter 20 explains the principle of the last verse of chapter 19. But also, the but at the start of verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 30, that pushes us back to Peter's question in verse 27. So Jesus here, from verse 30, is beginning to correct Peter from here on in. It's all one flow of logic. Um, so this brilliant story is part of the answer to Peter's question from verse 27. What then will we have in the kingdom of heaven? And we said last week, uh, Peter's statement uh, and this question, uh, they were both so right and so wrong at the same time. Last week, um, Jesus dealt with the right stuff, the good stuff, uh, end of chapter 19. But now, um, Jesus uh, deals with Peter's wrong thinking, the superiority complex. Um, See, by the end of chapter 19, we could be mistaken for thinking uh, Peter and his followers, they are the last who will become the first. And by the end of the story, I think we're supposed to have changed our minds on that. This brilliant story, it runs counter to how the entire world works. Uh, Let's feel the story together. Uh, We meet the master of a house, the boss in charge. Um, He owns a really big house. Um, He's got gardens chocker with vines. Uh, And the vines in the field are groaning, laden. It's harvest time, uh, ready to be picked. And perhaps today of all days, he suddenly realizes that he must pick all the fruit that day. So he does the logical thing, and he heads to the job center marketplace, and he finds a bunch of keen bean hard workers. They are the ones who have bothered to drag themselves out of bed. The time? 6 a.m. These guys are committed to the job. And crucially, verse 2, up front, the boss, he agrees the price, a whole denarius, which was a very fair day's wage for a laborer. So all is fair. Everyone's happy. Nobody crying out, accusing anybody of slave labor. Off they go to work. All is well on the farm. Certainly no shock in the story just yet, is there? 
And so the the story continues. We jump forward three hours to the third watch. Verse 3, that's around 9 a.m. And the boss, he decides for some reason to jump back into his 4 by 4 and pootle off to the job centre marketplace again. And he finds some more idle labourers who presumably couldn't be bothered to get out of bed before the sun rose. But they're here now, and so the boss says, verse 4, off you go to work too. You'll get whatever is right. And notice, the price here hasn't been settled, but just an assurance to do whatever is right. Our logical brains start doing the maths, don't they? The, the first labourers, they work from 6 till 6, a solid 12-hour day. So the 9am workers should get three quarters of a denarius, right? That seems right to us. Still, though, no shock in the story just yet. Verse 5 says, The boss twice more went for more labourers. I mean, perhaps the vines were still groaning away at 12 and 3 o'clock. Perhaps the storm was brewing, uh, which might ruin his harvest. I mean, perhaps he just wanted it, uh, wanted it all in before darkness fell. We don't know. But he went at the 6th and the ninth hours. That's 12 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so we're imagining... Half a denarius for the 12 o'clock workers and a quarter of a denarius for the three o'clock workers, right? Then crucially, a last-ditch attempt from the boss to pack a few more laborers in still at the 11th hour with just a single hour to go before the end of work. The boss, he recruits yet more workers. Verse 6, he finds them just standing around seemingly not even in the job center marketplace. I mean, perhaps they gave up all hope of work. I mean, we must remember their economy it was a hand-to-mouth stuff. Um, you got paid one day so that you could feed yourself for the next day, um, knowing that if you didn't get paid, you didn't eat. I mean, you can almost imagine uh, the 11th hour recruits Um, at five to five, kind of preparing to go home and break the news to his wife and kids. Uh, Sorry, family, I failed to get work today. Uh, No food for tomorrow. And the boss asks a good question. Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because nobody's hired us. Was that because they only just woke up and and missed the job centre hours um, entirely? Or perhaps nobody else wanted to hire them because they were the least desirable rejects of society. Again, it's not clear. We can't tell. But whatever the case, whatever the case, they're certainly, crucially, the last picked. And the boss doesn't care one bit. You go into the vineyard too. And so the end of the day arrives. The story still relatively undramatic. Only now do we get the drama of the story, but also the principle of the parable boiled down. Now remember the top and tail of the story? Chapter 19, verse 30, and chapter 20, verse 16, first, last, last, first stuff. And here it is again, right in the middle of this story, verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. 
Now, when those hired first at 6 a.m. came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And it doesn't take a behavioral psychologist to figure out what verse 11 will say. They grumbled. These last workers only one, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. The boss's foreman calls everyone around. Last in is the first out. And he gives them all their day's wages. It's not hard to imagine the difference, is it, between the 12-hour workers to the one-hour newest recruits. I mean, one would be stripped to the waist, sweat pouring off them, panting for breath, having endured the sun and the back-breaking efforts. The newbie? I mean, the shirt still relatively freshly pressed, barely a finger stained from the fruit picking. The contrast was so obvious that surely the foreman would see sense. Can you hear the cry? Not fair. Perhaps you're joining them on the picket line, petitioning for a fair wage. But don't forget verse 2. They were happy when they were hired. They knew the terms and conditions all until they compared. And you can just imagine the grumbles, can't you? They worked less and got the same. And let's just step back and look at the big picture. Consider the boss. The boss. Who have we got on our hands here in the boss? Um, Have we got a rather tight shrewd and clever businessman who could hoodwink people into working for him for less? Was he compelled by minimum wage structures from the government which forced him to pay everyone a denarius? Was he just a mean, stingy boss? It's such a compelling story, isn't it? So easy to be wrapped up in the motion rule. And doesn't verse 12 sound so like the world? Equality, my rights, That's what the world cries out for all the time, isn't it? It's wrong. It's wrong. This is the thinking that Jesus is turning on its head. When people turn to Christ on their deathbed, we cry out, it's not fair. They don't deserve it. And of course, we are right. We are right. They don't deserve it. But nobody deserves it. Nobody deserves it. Go re-listen to last week's talk if you don't believe me. Nobody deserves heaven the way Jesus has it planned out for us. Nobody. It's far too good for any of us. So what do we say to the 6 a.m. workers? Because you know what? Serving Christ is hard when done properly. It is hard. I mean, I sometimes, wrongly, I might add, look around at people who don't follow Jesus. And I think to myself, in my worst moments, wouldn't it be easier that way? Wouldn't it? From one perspective, it kind of would. It's less backbreaking work, listening to God and what he says, taking the gospel to the nations, counting the cost, as Jesus was so, sorry, as Peter was so keen to thrust down Jesus' throat last week. Serving Jesus brings burdens, big ones. Actually loving and caring for each other, it's hard, isn't it? Taking the gospel to anybody and everybody, it's hard. 
burdens. And the heat of the day, is that the heat of persecution? If you're only converted five minutes before you die, you don't have to experience that much of the suffering, if any at all, of just being a Christian whilst waiting for heaven. I mean, those latecomers to Christ, you know, the deathbed Christians, I think thief on the cross sort of person, do they get all the benefits without the costs? Mind you, it's worth just being really clear about this. Um, the deathbed conversion, it's a very, very rare thing, actually. Uh, usually, people are so hard-hearted that by the time they die, they won't even consider Christ, even when they have nothing else to lose. That's the normal story, certainly from all the people I've spoken to who work in hospitals with people. But when it does happen, when it does happen on those rare moments, is it unfair? What a crucial question for us as we consider heaven. Is it an unfair place? Is our God uh, in heaven unjust? Is the boss of the universe a tight-fisted, manipulative lowlife? Pretty crucial question, no? Just look down with me and read verse 13 very slowly. But he, the boss, he replied to one of them. Notice he addresses only one of them. Um, Is Jesus intending here to be speaking directly to Peter, perhaps? This one-on-one chat? Verse 13, friend. I love Jesus' tenderness here. He's speaking to someone who might be in danger of being out of the kingdom. That's always how Matthew uses the word friend. Somebody who might be in danger of not being in. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me, a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Notice Jesus' conclusion. This is the topsy-turvy, difficult-to-understand nature of the kingdom. The first will be last and the last first. Emphasis on the first being at the back. Uh, The logic then from Jesus, what is it? Nobody, but nobody loses out by becoming a follower of Jesus. God is no man's debtor. Remember, we felt that last week very keenly, didn't we? God is, verse 13, doing no wrong. He's fair. God is, verse 15, generous. He's lavish and so gracious. God is turning our thinking upside down right now. Or rather, should we say, he's turning our thinking the right way up. I mean, as we plod through the story, we shouldn't see a God becoming retrospectively tighter-fisted, but a God becoming more and more generous. God is open-handed. Come and work for me, big-hearted. He'll take anybody to work for him, even the five o'clock worker who couldn't be bothered to get out of bed. And he's so kind, so kind. God is generous without comparison. There is nothing in our world that is generous like God is. Nothing. And it, and it just doesn't make sense to us naturally. And that is why it's great that God is God and we are not God. If we bring our contractual obligations with God, we are only ever going to be on a sticky wicket. So we need to get it very clear indeed 
that we are there by grace alone, through faith alone. The moment that drops off, we'll be thinking like the world. And then we're in very real danger indeed. Friend, be careful. I mean, Lizzie helped us so well earlier, didn't she? I mean, the world just works like this. You get what you work for. You get your just desserts. There is no such thing as a free lunch. You have to work your way up. That's what we were raised on, wasn't it? The whole fabric of society is based on that. Me doing my bit so that I can get my just desserts, good conduct stickers from school, merits and rewards for excellent achievements. Really, really, it's all just designed to produce self-righteous, arrogant and self-assured individuals, isn't it? And just think of the workplace because it's no different there. It's all over it. The performance-related bonus, the results-related review. From all that I can tell, God just doesn't work like any of that. I'm not sure there is anything like my rights in heaven. In that sense, I don't think that God would sign on to the universal declaration of human rights. Can you think of a group in society that doesn't believe they they have all the rights. In, in heaven, there will definitely not be any holding God to ransom. There'll be no we deserve or no you should give us. No, my rights entitle me to this, that or the other. Do you know what I deserve? I deserve hell. Do you know what God should give me? Hell. Hell. Do you know what my rights entitle me to? Hell. The mindset of the kingdom, though, is of grace, followed by grace, followed by grace. That last phrase in verse 15 is so powerful. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Or literally, as the footnote says, rightly, or is your eye bad because I am good? In other words, can't you see my lavish grace on you? Have you missed the blatantly obvious, Christian? This story puts humanity's rules of fairness against the uncalculating love of God. Peter needed this story about heaven. We need this story about heaven. If we picture heaven like the world, we will never last the course, I tell you. Heaven will be unlike anything we can naturally imagine. God is no man's debtor. I hope we know that. Don't think for a moment that God owes us anything. Or is your eye bad? Have you gone temporarily blind, Christian? Have you taken your eyes off the prize that God has promised you? Heaven. Perfect abundance. Joy everlasting. In perfect relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A hundredfold blessings for every cost that you have to bear now. That's what we thought about last week. A hundredfold. It's impossible to count that, isn't it? If the early rising 12-hour worker had seen the generosity of his boss with a good eye, had seen a right view of God's grace, surely, surely, that worker would have stood at the back of the line watching the fresh faces of the 11th hour recruits and said something like this. He would have gone, wow, he's done it again. I can't believe it. How extraordinary. 
I thought it was too good to be true that I was in. And he's rewarding me. And yet, still this guy again. This God, this boss, he's giving yet again. Is there no end, no end to his grace and his generosity? The principle of the world is that he who works the longest receives the most pay. That is just. But in the kingdom of God, the principles of merit and ability must be set aside, must be, so that grace can prevail in everything. So as we start to come into conclude, let's not miss the reason this was written, the, the parable's purpose. God's grace makes some who are first last. If we are to grumble, we should be warned, seriously warned. Just skim through the Bible story and consider the grumblers. Think about who grumbles in the Bible. It's always a dreadful attitude to have, isn't it? It always misses God for what he's doing. And classically, of course, grumbling is behavior associated with old Israel, isn't it? Who were, who were rescued in the Exodus, then just continually grumbled about it. They were rescued, but then they only complained. They were lavishly given grace, but then only moaned. So as we land in this final section of Matthew, which is convicting old Israel and points to the new kingdom of heaven centered around Jesus, we find a warning not to be like old Israel. They were clearly the first in, weren't they? Perhaps now too, we see the sense that they'll be last, possibly even out, if they don't receive like a child. This kingdom is of a whole new order, a whole new way. Don't be like old Israel. Just think about what happened to the grumblers in Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10 describes them as destroyed by their destroyer. Just look where they are now. They're outside of the kingdom. Just look at where they are. They end up. Read chapters 24 and 25. Sheep in, goats out. So... Count your blessings. Count your blessings and know that God is no man's debtor. We, we got a denarius when we were penniless. We received grace when we had no hope. Question is, Christian, how are you going to respond to that grace? You're going to compare yourself to others? Because you'll grumble. You'll, you'll grumble. Be warned. This has got nothing to do with everybody else getting the same. But that God is so, so generous. His grace is unmeasurable. The world's kingdom is first, first, last, last. God's kingdom of heaven is entirely different. Nobody earns their way in. I mean, just think of Richard from last week, do you remember? You're in by grace and by grace and by grace. So as we land, remember last week, Jesus, he helped us lift our eyes to heaven. This week, we have a picture of heaven itself. And it's there so that we don't grumble like classic old Israel. And what's the key to not grumble? To not have a bad eye. It is not comparing to others. 
and to be positively fixing our eyes on God's goodness and the glory of heaven. Let me pray as we close. Heavenly Father, gracious God, thank you for this beautiful little story teaching us about heaven. Help us use this story to grasp that the kingdom is governed by grace and by grace and by grace. How marvelous, how wonderful, how unlike anything we have ever known, Father. Thank you. Any other way, we wouldn't be in. Thank you so much that your kingdom is so unlike the world's. And where we find your kingdom offensive, Lord, correct us. And where we find it confusing, Lord, teach us, help us not to grumble. Help us sit back and just receive the kingdom like a child. For your glory, we pray. Amen.